morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day. Oh. So it's an exciting day. And uh, in my family, we know how to celebrate Father's Day. Uh, we have already had tons of adrenaline this morning. I'm going to tell you a quick story because I think for those of you who are parents, it'll make you feel good to know that you're not alone. Uh, if you had any struggle at all getting children ready for church this morning, we want you to know that's quite normal. Um, today, we took that to a whole nother level that involves the sheriff's department. And so, um, just so you know, the, uh, the little packages of stuff that they put in purses and tennis shoes, it says don't eat it, but not because it's toxic, just because it's not food. And so, uh, when you see your two-year-old eating it, because your four-year-old has fed it to her, um, just know that calling 911 and poison control is not necessary. Um, but if you do, they're very polite, and they will come visit you at the house. And then ask to see your children to make sure they're okay. So, we started Father's Day with a bang. We're hoping that's our last interaction with law enforcement officials today. <sighs> we started last week a series on worship. And we, we, we said worship's important because ultimately we're always doing it. Uh, understanding rightly how we're created. We're, uh, the, the theologians have said we're continuously outpouring. We're always giving our lives, our energy, our effort, our vitality to something. Really, until the day that we die, we're giving our lives away towards something. Whether it's a relationship, a person, a cause, our own comfort, whatever it is, we're constantly outpouring in some direction. And that is the essence of what worship is. And so we established last week that, that as part of being created in God's very image, we're constantly outpouring towards something. And so worship is very important. The problem is, because of our sinfulness, we always tend to outpour towards the wrong direction. We, we tend to always kind of chase after things unless God comes in and pursues us and intervenes, drawing us near to Him. Our pursuits will always be away from Him. And so we establish from John chapter 4 in the teaching of Jesus that God is pursuing worshipers. That God is pursuing us. And so our worship is ultimately a response to a God who has pursued us in Christ, sending His only Son to die on a cross for us to redeem us and draw us near. So everything we do post-hearing the gospel, right, everything we do approaching God is ultimately a response to His love. And it's one of the key things that distinguishes Christianity from every other ultimately false religion in the world. Every other religious system has methods, ceremonies, and regulations that assist you in pursuing God. In, in initiating some relationship with Him. And ultimately, uh, they're always about appeasing the God so that I can get whatever material thing that I would like to have. And Christianity is the antithesis of that entire thing where we say that God has already loved you infinitely. No, no special rituals, no special ceremonies required to appease Him or earn His affection, but He's a God who has demonstrated His love for you in this, that He sent His only Son to die for you. That he pursued you while you were incapable of coming to him. To quickly kind of run through those, if, you, if you'd like to see a few texts that we didn't get, have time for last week. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching, and it's tough teaching. He loses, I don't know, about 95% of his followers in one sermon. Uh, maybe that's a test of whether or not it was good. Uh, so if I do my job today, as Jesus did in John 6, five of you will come back next week. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father 
who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Interesting to note, the Greek word draws in John 6 is the same word in Acts 13 that they use when Paul is apprehended, bound and drug out of the city to be stoned. So no one can come to me unless the father is active in drawing them. And then later in John 6, 65, Jesus again says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And what I want you to understand from that as the starting point is that our presence before God as his people worshiping him is because he initiated a relationship with us through Jesus. It's not because we decided to clean our act up and get religion. It's because God was gracious and his spirit was sent chasing after us who were wayward, drawing us, dragging us towards him. And some of us kind of understand that experience. We were busy chasing our own sinful desires and all of a sudden God just brought us to our knees in some instant. And sometimes it was progressive and slow because some of us are incredibly hard-headed. But we know that God has been pursuing us. And so our lives of worship is a response to Him because He has pursued us. So we begin with this statement that God seeks us because we don't seek him. We can't. And so our worship is a response. But what I want to get in today is a, is a long list you're going to see of biblical texts that seem to rub against that concept. And hopefully at the end we'll come to an understanding of how these two ideas work together. Because the Bible commands us to seek the Lord. And so what we established last week is that we can't seek him and he seeks us. And yet the Bible is going to tell us over and over again to seek after the Lord. So just to let you see this, we're going to run through a list of texts. They're not even going to be on the screen. You're not going to be able to keep up with your Bible. I'll be glad to post the list on our church Facebook page so you'll be able to download that and have it just for your own record or study. But I want you to get this with me. Beginning in the earliest writings of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we're just going to race through. This isn't all of them, but it's a few. In Deuteronomy 4.29, the Bible says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. In Chronicles 26.5, referring to King Uzziah, it says, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. In Psalm 9.10, he says, you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 22.6, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Psalm 27.4, one thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek him, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Psalm 34.10, young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 40.16, may all those who seek you be glad in you. Psalm 69.6, the Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor. Psalm 77.2, in the day of my trouble I will seek the Lord. Psalm 83, 16, fill their faces with shame that they may turn to your name. Put that one on a coffee cup and see how that goes. Psalm 105, 3 and 4, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Proverbs 8, 17, those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Proverbs 28, 5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand completely. Isaiah 26, 9, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Isaiah 51, 1, listen to me, those who seek righteousness, those who seek the Lord. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 58, 2, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. 
Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Daniel 9, 3. Then I turned with my face to the Lord, seeking him in prayers and pleas for mercy with fasting. And Hosea 5, 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And, and so I want you to see, this isn't it. This is just a short list. Of the Bible laying out this idea that God is telling his people to seek after him. And he doesn't, don't just seek after me. Seek after me with all of your heart. With all of your soul. And, and when you seek for me, he uses words like diligently, you'll find me. It says to seek his presence continually. So seek the Lord. Except, except then you go to Romans 3 and you go to Psalm 14 where the Bible tells us no one seeks God. So seek me. No one does. Seek after me. And then Ephesians, we said last week, says, uh, because of our sinfulness, no one can. So how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of God's clear instruction, encouragement, and blessing to seeking Him? And the Bible's plain teaching that because of our sin, we do not seek Him and we cannot seek Him. There's two passages I want us to look at this morning. To answer that question. The first is in Romans chapter 12. Now a little over a year ago. Maybe longer than that. We spent six weeks in these two verses alone. And I want to encourage you if you, if you want to dig into them. We did a series called Be Transformed. You can still go onto the podcast and download those. And I would encourage you to do that. But we're just going to get in a little bit to Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, I want to start with something very simple. I want you to see, when the Apostle Paul writes this, how important this is to him. He is making an appeal, an urgent request to people he dearly loves, that they would pursue the Lord as living sacrifices. So it matters to him. He also points out that it's in response to something else. You know, he says, therefore, brothers. So he's looking backwards. And the entire epistle to the Roman church, this whole letter, has laid out a few key things. One is the sinfulness of man. Romans 1 through 3. He just drives the case home that we are all sinful, that we're incapable of pursuing him. Romans 3 through 6. He's driving home the reality that God is good and that he has offered salvation to us through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And then he begins to kind of press the needle further in verses in chapter 7 uh, through about 8 where he's pushing in this idea that God will do this for us. That God's going to do this. Not you. You can trust him. He's going to do this. And, and then he takes a little time in, in, in chapters 9 and 10 and 11. He begins to talk about, well, what about the people of Israel? Because it seems to us that, that they ran from you and that you've left them. And it's saying, no, no, the promises I've made to them, I've made to them and I'll keep them. You can trust me. And then when we get into chapter 12, he says, in light of this, in light of our sinfulness, God's mercy, his certainty and trustworthiness, I want you to live in a certain way. I want you to live offering your lives as living sacrifices. But I want you to notice how he says we do this. We do this by the mercies of God. And there's a couple ways that's translated. If you've got an NIV, you'll, you'll see it. It says, in view of God's mercies. 
There's, there's two ways of understanding this phrase that's translated here by the mercies of God. One is to say that, that because of what he's done for us and our awareness of it, that should be our drive and our motivation to pursue it. Another way to understand this is, is to say that we do this by the mercies of God, that our pursuit of worshiping Him is by His mercy to us. It's not because we woke up one day and decided to clean ourselves up and all of a sudden be presentable before God as if we had the capacity to do that and now we're going to be good worshiping people. That, that's, that's not what He's saying. You do this. You live the Christian life because of God's mercy to you, And the fuel to do it, the strength, the energy to continue to wake up each day, live for God's glory as an act of worship, is something that He has given to you because He's good and merciful to you. So it's not something we do on our own strength. It's God pursuing us, God strengthening us, God empowering us by His Spirit. And with that said and done for us, giving us the motivation, the strength, and the energy to move forward, He tells us a certain way to live. To live as a living sacrifice. Now, that's somewhat of an oxymoron when you think of it. Because this is how the sacrificial system works. Uh, you bring a lamb or a goat or whatever it is you have to the temple. And they don't just go, oh, look at that. You gave that to the Lord. We're going to go put that in God's sheep pen. Or, oh, this bird, we're going to put that in God's chicken coop and we'll keep it. That's, that's not what we do with the sacrifice. A, a sacrifice was always Killed. And so you have this new thing in the New Testament which says, look, we don't want you to bring sacrifices to the temple anymore because Jesus has paid in full for our sin. There's no need for additional sacrifice. We want you to offer up your lives as living sacrifices, presenting them before the Lord, offering them to Him completely. And so we are simultaneously living and dying. We're sacrifices, which means there's death to our own self, our own goals and desires and ambitions and there's the the new joy that comes as his spirit infuses new desires new ambitions new goals for our lives this week uh, the last two weeks we've got to to make some new friends on the soccer field with our kids and we had lunch with some guys and one of the questions this young man had for me is skeet how did you become a pastor like how does someone do that that's probably seems weird and so i i, I just answered as honestly i could and said look I was chasing in one direction and God radically changed my heart. I understood fully, as full as I can, what he had done for me when his son died for me. And at that moment, he, he captured my heart and I, and I wanted to serve him and I wanted to be with him. I mean, why does a, a frat boy all of a sudden want to go to a Bible study? Can anyone sort that out for me? That's not natural. And and what happened in my life and what happened in my heart is that all of a sudden this kid who had been raised in church um, all of a sudden was got this passion for God that I didn't create in me. Where I just wanted to consume the Bible. I mean, that's not a normal desire for a a, a freshman in college, a sophomore in college who's running around trying to be in a fraternity. That's that's abnormal. But but here's what God does. It's not just that he goes, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you. You're going to be in heaven now. That's, that's just kicking it off. The Bible says that, that that transformation is so significant. Jesus in John 3 says it's like being born again. It's like starting over. 
new passions, new desires, a new family identity as we're part of the people of God. A new ambition, not for our own glory, but for His. And so all of these new desires, new impulses begin to flood into us. And then the rest of the Christian life is figuring out how to faithfully follow the, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit as He does that. That's really the rest of it. That's what we're all going to do if we're pursuing Christ until then. It's just trying to sort out within the study of God's word, prayer, time with the people of God. Okay, this is how the Holy Spirit's leading me. How do I be faithful to that? And how do I put to death these lesser desires that in the end will not bring the joy that they promise? Just as we're living sacrifices, we're putting an old way of life to death and there's this new life that's coming in and all of life is then presented to God. But it's done. You notice that. In view of his mercies, in response to them. I also want you to notice that he doesn't say that there's a particular religious ceremony in which you offer a sacrifice. He says we are to live our lives Offering up our bodies, all of us, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. He says, this is your spiritual worship. Now, I want you to think through this. This is radically redefining worship. So the, the Roman church is comprised of a mix of, of, of previously Jewish people who have become Christians and then uh, people who had come out of paganism who have now become Christians. But in both instances, worship generally is something that happens at a temple that involves specific religious rituals. And for us, a lot of times, that's a similar concept, right? We begin to think of going to worship. Like we came to worship this morning. Now, there's something important about us gathering together. Churches intended to be done collectively as a people. So you can't get away from that or say that it's not significant or important for us to gather together and worship. But 9.30 for Sunday school or 10.45 for worship is not when worship begins. It's when we gather together and collectively worship with one another as a continuation of lives being lived to the glory of God. Celebrating God's goodness, celebrating his faithfulness, asking for more of his strength and his presence like we saw in the Psalms. So we come together worshiping as people who live lives as worshipers with all of our lives, all of our hearts. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 helps us a little further and it makes this thing a little more granular and a little more street level. And I want you to see that because it's somewhat mind blowing. If you grew up in church, you've heard this verse before. But uh, I want it to sink in a little bit. I want us to soak in what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So uh, it's one thing to talk about particular things that we do to the glory of God that are big things. Uh, so to say, you know, I'm going to go serve in this ministry and I want to glorify God in this ministry or I'm going to tell this guy at work about Jesus because I want to glorify Jesus and I want this guy to be saved. Now, th those seem relatively big or we're going to leave and go become missionaries because we have this passion for God's glory. But but I want you to see 1 Corinthians 10 31 says there's a way to do breakfast with the passion for God's glory. 
Like there's a way to drink coffee that it glorifies God. There's a way to eat a ribeye steak. The glory. There's even a way to eat salad to the glory of God. Broccoli to the glory of God. Now, I'm not figured that one out yet. But theologically, I know it's true. What does it mean for us to do nominal things, to eat, to have meals, whatever we do to the glory of God? See, this takes it out of the, the special religious time where worship happens and it begins to infuse kind of nominal daily tasks like teeth brushing as an act of worship. Whatever you do. Addressing this issue in the Babylonian captivity of the church, the great reformer Martin Luther said this, The work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household task, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, there's no special class of guys. So the, the guy that prepares the sermon, who preaches the sermon, he, he's doing something just as honorable to God as the, as the housewife who cares for her children. As the school teacher who educates children. As the farmer who works in the field. As the businessman who runs a business. Or the accountant who audits books. Or, or, or the salesman who hopefully tells the truth when he closes the deal. But in all of those things, the job itself is no different before God as an opportunity to glorify Him. He says it's measured by our faith. And ultimately what Luther meant by that was did we approach that task with a joy for the Lord and a desire to do it well in such a way that His glory would be seen and enjoyed. And so moms who, who, who raise up their kids in the home in such a way that communicates grace and love of Christ to those kids, they do it to the glory of God. Or when they're around other parents or in other settings and they demonstrate that gracefulness and they're ready. So Second Peter, we bring that back. He says, always be ready when you're living this way to give a reason for the hope that's in you. So live dramatically different. Do everything for the glory of God and be prepared when it's noticed as strange, but in a good way, to give a reason for it. That ultimately we live this way because God has given us everything and He's blessed us so immensely through His Son. The school teacher who goes to work with, with other people's children, who teaches them, who raises them up, who trains them, who nurtures the soul, hopefully with the goal to glorify God and for Christ to be seen through them. They're entering into a sacred task. The, the businessman who runs a business and uses his ability as a leader to, to bless others and to make the name of Jesus known. He enters into a sacred task when he it's, gets to his office Monday morning. The bus driver, the waiter, the cook, the farmer, all of these, Luther says, these are sacred tasks. Work given to us by God to glorify Him. So it's not just special jobs. It's not just teaching Sunday school or volunteering or, or something that everyone would say, oh, that's, that's a high calling. What we're getting at here in 1 Corinthians 10.31 is that breakfast is a high calling. That work, whatever the job is, so far as it's moral and ethical, is a high calling. And can be done in such a way that it's an act of worship to God. Now this is difficult to sort out. 
So I want to talk at the most basic level, kind of what that might look like. How do I do that? And so we, we use the example, how do I enjoy morning coffee to the glory of God daily? Like, how do I do that? I mean, that sounds interesting. So I want to maybe talk about that from this perspective. I'm not a coffee snob. In fact, I prefer cheap coffee. Um, so I would rather go to the Conoco station and get the community coffee they make than go to Starbucks. Now, I take people to Starbucks because I know that I'm abnormal. So I have very little appreciation for what kind of bean this is. I, it's like a blend, right? And I don't know, you blended coffee with coffee, so I don't know what the blend is. Um, but but they, everything's a blend, and that makes it sound fancier. And then you go and you have coffee. So a very little appreciation for whatever the nuances of coffee are. But I like it. I enjoy a cup of black coffee in the morning. Now, for me to appreciate it, I could sit next to a guy who maybe knows everything about coffee. He's one of those coffee nerds, and he's got the really good stuff that he made in his French press. And, and so he's got fancy coffee in a nice mug, and I've got uh, gas station coffee in the paper cup. And we're next to each other. Now, now coffee's guy if he doesn't know Jesus, can appreciate everything about the coffee, right? And, and he might know more about the elements of what, where this bean was picked and how it was roasted and, you know, I just ground it now so that, you know, if you don't brew it within 10 seconds of it grinding, it, I, don't, I don't know, right? And if you love coffee, hey, I love you too. And, and I'm a nerd on other stuff, I'm just not revealing that. So that guy, when it comes to the, the natural understanding of the product, has a greater enjoyment of it than I do. He's a greater capacity for enjoyment. But that enjoyment is all kind of on the baseline level of appreciating the thing. Whereas approaching that cup of coffee, coffee rightly, I am not only enjoying the coffee, but I'm enjoying the giver of the gift. Because I'm saying that God has given this to us for our enjoyment to wake us up in the morning so that we're kinder to our children. And that this is God's common grace to all of us. And so, so not only do I enjoy, oh, that's a good cup of coffee, but I also enjoy there's a good God who's given it to me. And so my enjoyment of the thing, however basic it is, is infused with deeper meaning because it's a part of a relationship I have to my father who's given me all things for my enjoyment and his glory. So one guy on the baseline, man, he, he really enjoys it. But that's all it can be. He doesn't know the giver of the gift. But when we know the one who gave it to us, even small things that we enjoy are infused with a, a depth because we go, oh, this little thing God gave to me. It's a gift from him. He's good to me. We not only enjoy the presence from our father, we enjoy our father. Since it's Father's Day, it might be helpful to think of it this way. How many teenagers do we know that... that would look back and say, you know, I wish I really didn't have a dad so long as the bills were paid and cards came on my birthday. I mean, if I got all the stuff that a dad gives me, right? If I, if I got the toys, if someone gave me my first uh, baseball glove, if, if I got a bike, if I, and someone, maybe my dad hired a guy to come teach me to ride the bike, but I never interacted with the man. Are those equal? Right, we can obviously say that they're, they're nowhere near on the same playing field. One is being a provider, the other is being a daddy. And who would rather have a provider over a daddy? 
If we just enjoy the gift, we, that's what we've said. We said, just, just give me the stuff. But the celebration of the stuff is so much smaller than knowing the God who gave it to us. And if we only focus on the, the, the earthly thing, we miss it. And so when, when the scriptures tell us that anything we can do, we can do to the glory of the God, that means that we maybe slow down from time to time and we just reflect on the fact that these are good gifts from our Father who loves us. And we rejoice in Him. We celebrate His goodness to us in nominal, seemingly small things. Because when you consider that everything we have, that we have life and breath in everything because of His goodness to us, this great cause for celebration. Even on days when the sheriff's department comes to your front door. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3 and chapter 2 bring these to a head for us. And we'll start in chapter 3 and we're going to backtrack a little bit. Because I want you to see how this kind of enjoyment, this kind of worship of God as a, as a full pursuit of our lives, even in the smallest things, works. So go to Philippians chapter 3 verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I want you to flip back with me now to Philippians chapter 2, real quick to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we need to see a dynamic that's going on here, is that the Bible has laid out for us God's goodness to us in Jesus, and that the only appropriate response is full and complete worship and adoration to him with our entire lives and the most meaningless, simple things. And, and, but how do we do that? Right? If this is my life's pursuit, is to glorify Jesus, how do I do that? And so the Apostle Paul says, look, I'm pressing on, I'm straining with all of my might towards what God has called me to, towards the glory of Christ in all nations. I'm pressing and straining, forgetting about the past, forgetting about the shame of my sin and the failures of my past, and, and driving towards Christ and His glory. Well, okay, that, that, that sounds like a lot of work. But you've got to see the setup in Philippians 2 for us. So you do all of this. Everything through His power. That's Him who's at work in you. That you would live a life what, to His good pleasure. That you would honor and please Him and worship Him with your life. So it's His Spirit at work in you. And, and here's where we, we want to come to with this, guys. Is that, is that our lives, having been pursued by Jesus and His death on the cross and His resurrection, and then sending His Spirit to draw us near to Him, to strengthen us and empower, empower us to walk with Him. He's done all of that for us to pursue us. And in response to that, our life's pursuit becomes His glory and honor. That's the only appropriate response. We owe Him everything. And we're not trying to repay him because we're obviously incapable of doing that. We didn't bring anything to the table. Everything we have is his that he's given to us. 
So we live our lives out of joy, celebrating the gifts that he's given us, the salvation that he's provided for us, the hope that we have for eternity, and the life that we have with him now where he's promised to never leave or forsake us. He says, now, you do that, and you strive with all of your effort and all of your work, even with fear and trembling, but but don't miss this. It's him who's at work in you. So the the Holy Spirit's there. He's navigating this thing. And and the fuel in the engine is provided by God. You're in the car. You're there to cooperate. But He's given you everything you need. Everything you need to live a life that honors Him every day. That's what worship comes down to for us. This becomes our life's pursuit. Pursuit. Not one of many things that we do on the weekend. But the true understanding of what it is to worship in spirit and truth involves an entire life-encompassing commitment, joy, and passion for the glory of Jesus. Now, I know we all fall short of that every day. But my encouragement to you is this, is that the Spirit is present and He's working to do this in you. So when you stumble, when you fall short, be like the Apostle Paul who says, I forget what lies behind and I press on. Because as we sang, there are countless second chances at the cross. His mercies are new every morning to us. And they're new every morning because we need them every morning. And he's good. And if you're here today and you say, oh, this, this is interesting, this is unique, and may, maybe I want to consider who Jesus is and whether or not I want to follow him, let me encourage you with this, with the words of the Psalms. Seek him while he is near. God has been merciful and patient with us. He's offered his son to forgive us of all of our sins by his death and resurrection. But a day is coming when he will return and there will be judgment. And so my encouragement to you, my plea to you would be to trust him today. We don't have a promise of another day. We don't have a guarantee of anything. But what we do have is a God who sent his only son to die for us, who has said this, if you simply Trust me. That all of your sins will be taken away. There will be no more penalty or judgment. That you will stand before God cleansed and spotless. And he will declare on the day of judgment not guilty and welcome you as a son or a daughter. And we will spend eternity lavishing in the riches of the God who loved us and praising the name of his son Jesus. And what a better way to kick off today than preparation for eternity, worshiping this God who saved us. Father God, we thank you that you have pursued us, that you have chased after us in our sin, and that you have been so kind and patient towards us. That you sent your only son to die for us. And that in your mighty power, you raised him from the dead, demonstrating your power over Satan's sin and death, promising us the hope of eternal life. Lord, I pray that 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 would soak into us in such a way that we would respond to you by your spirit's leading and empowerment with lives committed to worship you in everyday things. 
in, in morning coffee, in lunch, in, in times with our children, in, in times at the workplace, and dealing with frustrating people. But that in all of those things, we would find opportunity to glorify and honor your Son. Lord, I pray that that would become the overriding desire of my heart and everyone here. And that our life's pursuit would be your Son's glory being seen and enjoyed throughout all of creation. In Jesus' name, amen.